Welcome to the Music Business Podcast. Whether you're an aspiring music business professional or a seasoned vet, every Thursday, the Music Business Podcast brings you the trends, tactics, and insights from some of the world's brightest minds in music. I'm Jordan Williams of EQT Management. And I'm Sam Heisel from Knox. We're not teachers. We're entertainment industry professionals, drinkers, wannabe comedians, and most importantly, fans. Welcome to the show. Yo, what's up, Sam? How you doing, man? Yo, you sounding tired. I'm I'm a little I'm a little tired. It's getting a little late, you know. Time to wake up. No, I do got to wake up, man. We got to introduce a it's very podcast special guest. O'clock. It's podcast music business podcast o'clock. Whoa! Today, <laughs> whoa! <laughs> Today we have a very special guest, Sherry Who. For the people that don't know who she is, I like to call her a music industry analyst. She has bylines and a bunch of different resources that people read in order to get an update on music industry news, but in particular, um, the intersection between music and tech. Sam, what are some places that she's written in just to give people yeah, an update? Everywhere that's anywhere, Billboard, Forbes, uh, Music Business Worldwide, um, Rolling Stone, Resident Advisor, the list goes on and on. I think, uh, her newsletter is really incredible. Same with her podcast, Water and Music. Uh, definitely recommend you guys check out the show notes so you can sign up for her newsletter and listen to her podcast. In the episode, we cover a lot of ground. Uh, I had a lot of fun speaking around higher level industry trends. I think. She's got a very unique perspective. She got her undergrad at Harvard and was very deep into the kind of statistics and data and research. So there's this very kind of research-centric approach towards identifying and speaking about different music, uh, different trends in the, the music industry with a focus on tech and how kind of tech is largely impacting the, the foundation of the music industry. So whether it's strategies that you as an artist or manager can use to help your artists thrive and where to kind of point your focus, or you're more interested in some of the, the big trends that could be playing a major part in the future of the music industry. As we look three to five years out, I think uh, we really just kind of no leave no stone unturned in this episode. So I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. I think something that I really like about this episode is it gets very conversational very fast because the music tech world obviously moves really fast, but there are so many things that people are sort of waiting for. Mm-hmm. So it really gives me and you the opportunity to to have a great conversation with her because this is something that me and you have been interested in in a very long time. And um, it's a very interesting uh, intersection to study and to talk about. So in addition to everything that we've learned just from talking with her, we've also learned a lot from each other. You know, you, at some point you're asking me questions too, because mm-hmm. we just go so far down that rabbit hole and we end up staying in this, in this area here for over, over a little, a little over an hour. And I'm, I'm excited for people to hear it for sure. So, uh, without any further ado, excited to jump into the episode. One last thing. Music business podcast has a new home. Uh, we're now recording out of bands in town, uh, the bands in town office. So Bands of Town, if you're not familiar, is an app that you can use to track your favorite artists and figure out when they're going to be, um, when they're going to be playing a show in your city. I think, uh, whether from the fan perspective or from the actual kind of artist services side, like Jordan, you want to talk about how you use it with all of your artists? Yeah. Every time there's a show announced, I put it on Bands in Town. Um, it's just such an important tool for people to see. The, the Bands in Town feed is sent to Facebook where a lot of people check events and, and, the Bands in Town tab uh, on Facebook, but it's also, you know, we embed it on every one of our artists' websites. So when we announce tours, a lot of the times the links that people are going to are via Bands in Town. So um, I'm personally excited to be recording in here because I work with Bands in Town for, with my clients every day. Yeah. Yeah. So super grateful for the opportunity to record in this space. But without any further ado, let's jump into the episode. 
Sherry, welcome to the Music Business Podcast. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Super excited. Uh, I think really excited about this episode personally. As somebody that kind of came from the startup world and has always been very fascinated by tech, I think you've been able to share a lot of unique perspectives around the intersection of music and tech, both through your podcast as a journalist, um, through your research, all that good stuff. So really excited to dive into it here. Yeah, same here. Um, for starters, can you just talk a little bit about your personal interest in that intersection? I think obviously, I mean, music and tech are, there's tons of overlap, but I think for somebody to really dive very deep into that intersection is kind of the kind of focus and unifying thread throughout your careers is really fascinating. What drew you to that? Yeah. So I guess for most of my life, I've actually been a performer. So I've, I'm classically trained in piano. And that was like my main extracurricular, like throughout high school and just like in childhood. And I was very close to just going to conservatory to study piano full time, which would have been very different from, from what I do now. But I, uh, but that, that's like, I guess most of my ex- connection with music is on the creative side, which I still like de- definitely like, care a lot about. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I grew up being a huge math nerd and I ended up studying math and then stats as an undergrad as my major mm-hmm. and then minoring in music as well. Mm-hmm. So from a very early stage, I was thinking about how to combine those two. Uh, and because I was a performer, it started more on like the level of music theory. Like how do you apply math to understanding like what melodies, harmonies, rhythms, you right. know, like sound good to people. But then eventually it wasn't really until like 2013, 2014 that I, uh, I guess my mind opened up to what was possible in terms of just working in the music industry behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's kind of strange to think about ironically how, you know, despite playing piano for all these years, like that's the only area of the music industry that I knew. And then once I had my first experience in the industry, which was just a two week shadowing experience at Interscope with their A&R team, um, it was like a winter break program through my school. It just totally opened my mind like, wow, there's um, so much possibility. Like you don't just have to have a, like a musical background to really have impact in the space. Mm-hmm. And then so I was starting to think about the music, math, music stats intersection on the business side especially as, you know, streaming services started to grow and gain more influence. So after that internship, I did an academic research project at Harvard Business School. Mm -hmm. And I like very clearly remember that summer Apple Music launched and it like changed a lot of the conversation that people were having about streaming. So it was Mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, there actually are, I guess YouTube preceded that, but I think it was really Apple Music launching like like 2015 or something. Yeah, yeah, like June 2015. Um, and it's like, oh, th- there are these like huge tech companies, um, with a- lots of different businesses who are now going to have like more and more impact on music and how right. like artists make money. Totally. And so, and also during that summer, so it's a mix of like macro financial analysis of where the music industry was going, plus like very micro level interviews with tech entrepreneurs and mm-hmm. like artists and how they were using tech to, uh, I guess, to build their everyday careers on the individual human level. So it was like a really interesting combination of perspectives in that sense. And so I did that, had a ton of ideas coming out of that and just started my own blog on WordPress for free. Mm -hmm. Um, So writing was never in the picture like throughout throughout all of this. I I thought I would maybe want to work at a company like Spotify or Apple Mm -hmm. Music, like a streaming service that was on the front lines of trying to analyze all this data mm-hmm. right. to right to help artists labels the wider music industry. Yeah. Um, so I, I had these ideas and like, yeah, started this blog, just analyzing everyday news, um, started going to Berkeley, like in Boston, trying mm-hmm. to go to more of their events uh, on these topics. And then a friend 
uh, drags me to this media career fair that takes place every fall uh, on Harvard's campus. And I happen to like walk past the Forbes table and they have like a celebrity 100 issue every year. And in 2015, Katy Perry was on the cover. So I was like, Oh, I know somewhat uh, who Katy Perry is and like what she's <laughs> yeah. doing. I know about, about the music industry. I'll like go up and see, see what happens. Right. Um, and the person who was there, his name is Zach Greenberg. He's a senior editor of media and entertainment at Forbes. And he, he and I like immediately struck up a really interesting conversation because his career at Forbes, he basically introduced all of, um, Forbes' hip hop coverage to the publication. So he mm-hmm. like was the first person to start covering like Jay Z, Dr. Dre, Diddy, like these like big, uh, rap stars. And so he was also thinking a lot about streaming right. and about entrepreneurship because a lot of these artists were like in hip hop were also on the front lines of mm-hmm. kind of encouraging more entrepreneurial activity for right. artists. So we were talking about that. Uh, I mentioned the project that I did, like the um, internships I'd done. And immediately he was like, we need more people to write about streaming for us now. Mm-hmm. Like we don't have anyone covering this, um, right. like at least among our like freelancers, our contributors. Right. Um, and he was like, you should consider like submitting a sample and, yeah. and writing if you're interested. And I was so surprised and I, I didn't expect anything to come out of it because I had basically only written this blog. Mm-hmm. I'd written uh, like a column for my student newspaper that was about music, but like not, it wasn't on the business side. So I was like totally new to the world of writing, but had some experience in the music and tech space already just by nature of like this research and work yeah. experience. So, yeah, so in yeah. hindsight, how long, how long have you been doing the blog at the time? When you met the person from Forbes? Oh, it must have been uh, like three months, four months. So it was okay. very new. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was super new. Yeah. But I'm I'm like super grateful to Zach because I think he like noticed that I had an interesting or maybe unconventional take on mm-hmm. where things were going in music. Right, right, right. right. Um, yeah. So he gave me the opportunity to just like start writing a regular yeah. column on the site. So, it's awesome too because yeah. I mean, I think like. A lot of, I mean, this goes across all industries, but a lot of the technological advances that are made largely are really what's driving the path forward as far as like the direction. I think lots of times you will see like a lag between like technological advances and then the actual like commercialization of said technology. Like you look at like Bluetooth tech, which is now becoming like super popular. Like Bluetooth tech actually was around in like the nineties, like early nineties before like even personal computers were like super popular. So I think there, there is like this lag, which is generally speaking, a lot of the breakthroughs that are happening in technology, like a couple years down the road are really just kind of dictating how the industry is operating at large. So I think to be able to really dial in and find some of the unique trends that are happening on the technological side is uh, very unique and I think exciting. Yeah, totally. And I'm thinking, so as part of my career right now, I go to a lot of conferences Mm -hmm. um, and they've been mostly music conferences, but I've been trying to kind of break out of that bubble and go to more tech conferences. Right. And the biggest one in tech that I've been to is the Web Summit in Lisbon, which I never heard about until I like got an opportunity to moderate a panel there. But there was there were like over seventy thousand people attending. Wow. Yeah, which like for a city like Lisbon, especially, <laughs> yeah, a lot of people. like super overwhelming. It's a lot of people. Um, and music was just it must have been like five percent of all the yeah, programming. Right, there was like right. one track, but I went there and it opened up my mind so much because in at these music conferences we are having very productive for the most part like conversations about like ai streaming mm-hmm. gaming yeah but at this at this web summit like the conversations i feel like were 
a year, even like two years ahead yeah. already. Yeah. Or maybe because the focus was on the actual technology. Right, it wasn't sure. necessarily on like maybe the politics or the, the business of trying to rally everyone around it right. in terms of like investing in it. Like that's definitely different. For sure. Story. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And the whole notion, I mean, of um, I mean, technological adoption within the music industry, I do think generally the music industry can move a little bit faster than some other industries just because of how like closely it is tied to culture. And I think mm-hmm. like, right. Without mm-hmm. getting too like ambiguous, like culture um, is really what pushes the adoption of like tech. I still think that because of how much power still remains in these like massive organizations within the music industry, like it still is a relatively like slow moving industry. So, I mean, in your perspective, like what startups are, yeah, let's talk startups for a sec. Like, are there any interesting or exciting startups you're personally seeing in the music industry that you're like very bullish on? Yeah, there are a couple. So one company that I think is super interesting is uh, called The Wave. Mm-hmm. Do you know about The Wave VR or The Wave? They're not The Wave XR. Okay. When I first heard about them, I like honestly was kind of skeptical because the pitch was... um any user can create and host their own social rave in VR. Nice. Which is like a cool concept. <laughs> Jordan's about to become a, oh, a yeah. super <laughs> VR rave promoter. He's going to throw the littest VR raves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, in that, in that situation, I feel like you really have to see how they roll it out because yeah. somebody, anybody could just say that, right? Like, yo, we're going to make a rave. It's going to totally. be in VR. Totally. <laughs> totally. So it's like, totally. you know, as you explain how they actually did that, I think is where where the gems will yeah, come out. Yeah, totally. And they like uh, kind of rode the wave of the VR hype like a couple yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah. And do, for sure. So I, this was just part of why I was super skeptical. But what's super interesting is that, I guess, well, two things. One, uh, their power, I guess, users, which include a lot of artists, really tap into like very small niche subgenres of electronic music. So you're not mm-hmm. going to see, for now, it might change, but you, you might not see like a dead mouse Right. right, like hosting a rave or something, but you'll see like a lot of um pretty big glitch artists, mm-hmm, like in mm-hmm. like a glitch and more like chiptune artists as well, are like hosting pretty popular in terms of like long term engagement, like weekly engagement raves um in this space. And then they've also so now they have collaborated with artists like Toki Monsta, Imogen Heap. Oh nice. Um yeah, Jean Michel Jarre on these like immersive raves or like uh I guess immersive experiences around their albums, mm-hmm. around their work. Yeah. So th- that's what they did with Toki Monster for Lune Rouge, um, her a recent album. And so now what they're doing is they claim that this is separate from what happened with the Marshmallow and Fortnite mm-hmm. show. But they're, so they're called the Wave XR now because they're um, hoping to expand and create virtual experiences independent of any headset. So like creating virtual concerts in collaboration with like sandbox style game like engines. So like uh and I, I bring up the Marshmallow Fortnite concert because that that concert actually I think woke up a lot of people to in terms of like understanding the actual appeal of something like VR. For sure. It's like, oh, like we can all tune in and listen to this concert and it'll be mm-hmm. like 10 million people tuning in simultaneously. Like that's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um and so this company, The Wave, is I think now like trying to work with more gaming companies or companies building these virtual environments to help like stage more of these concerts for artists and like handle booking, but also I guess visual and technological design yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. and like operations around for that. Sure. So yeah, I think they're, 
Uh, I mentioned them as a really interesting startup because they also have a view of the music industry that I, that I identify with in terms of thinking more expansively, like music, like music and gaming are going to converge, I think in ways that we're only really just now starting to see like the marshmallow Fortnite concert kind of being the tip of the iceberg of that. And yeah, they, the founder comes from the gaming world, but I think he worked on games like rock band or like some sort of like music style games. So he's familiar with the business side too, which I think like really helps, but he also like has more of like an outside perspective in that sense. That's fascinating. Yeah. When it comes to just like, and for VR, I think it'll be like super exciting too. Cause I think we'll literally just start to spend a lot of time in these like virtual worlds. So to, I mean, we'll definitely go to concerts. Uh, I mean, cool to hear early mover. What do you think is like the actual like timeline on adoption of like VR? Mm. Like average consumers start in general to, like, or in use, the music industry? I'd say just in general. That's a good question. So it's a really good question because I'm, I'm honestly not totally convinced yet that mass audiences will even want to own something like a VR headset that closes off the world completely and like you're like gluing a phone to your face yeah. like, <laughs> or like gluing I mean, like, we're a definitely, screen. like trending in that direction just based <laughs> on how of. much time people are like looking at their phone it's like That's why true. not put like glue it on your face <laughs> put it in your glasses <laughs> you don't even have to do anything That's true. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's so true. Like we're, we're, already there. we're already there in terms of like the amount of time we spend. So I'm personally more interested in mixed reality. And so funny you mentioned like, oh, why not just put it in your glasses? Like there are the, so the most interesting companies to me. I don't know if they'll succeed, but like there are companies like Magic Leap. And so Magic Leap is building like mixed reality glasses and they're so expensive right now. I think it's like over $3,000 a pair. Mm. So it's like not accessible right, at right, all. Right. Um, but basically it, it doesn't cut off the world. There's regular glasses, but they kind of map. So like we're sitting at this table now and if you put on this, these glasses, they can map kind of 3d objects onto the table that you can walk around and interact with. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it is taking into account the surrounding environment. And I think augmented reality, it's the mainstream adoption of that will come a lot sooner if it isn't already here. Cause mm-hmm. even like very simple things like, Bitmoji in Snapchat like videos, right? right. Like animated Bitmoji. That's like augmented reality, and that's kind of a very elementary introduction of what's possible right, right. to you know like everyday users or teens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, I, I would say within for sure within like the next five years, and also thinking like the hype is largely gone, but Pokemon Go had. Uh, such a significant impact on yeah, I was people's just about understanding. To bring that up. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, like, I, I remember my neighborhood. I, I moved to to Bushwick, Brooklyn. I didn't really know uh-huh. that the, the neighborhood too well when I first moved there, but I immediately felt comfortable because there were so many people walking around doing Pokemon Go on their phone. <laughs> I, was, I was like, I was like, look, I'm That's coming amazing. back home. It's two a.m. right now, and there are people outside doing Pokemon Go. Like, I'm safe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. And- <laughs> And so, like, unlike... <laughs> Sam has been gentrified. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's over. Yeah. I was late. I was late. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, no, I'm so glad you brought that up, though, because so unlike VR, much of the appeal of which is kind of, like, making place irrelevant, right? Like, you can tune into any environment or access any environment, regardless of where you are. Uh, the appeal of AR is kind of the opposite. Like, it brings people together in person in these like concrete, you know, in these, I guess, local areas and creates that sense of local community that, um, I think p- 
people are much more drawn to for right now, or at least are much more familiar with in terms of like how to connect with people. And um, like, if you look at, so in music, one application of AR that's pretty common is that like music festivals. And like for that, like you have to be there. And like the appeal is about being there with other people in a social environment to experience this new tech. And so, yeah, so I think that'll be a really important element of adoption um, as with a lot of other technologies is like the social and the communal aspect. Mm-hmm. I think just like the way that AR works, the fact that you can attach it to anything with a camera and it's much more accessible. And so I think adoption of that will come a lot more quickly than any like VR headset. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that'll happen quicker in the music industry? That's a good question. I think music will not be a leader in the mainstream adoption of VR and AR. It's definitely like doing a lot of early experiments, but in terms of actual like use cases that people come back to, I think it'll be more things like gaming or to go back to like VR specifically, um, maybe because it's like who has the most money, but a lot of the investment is in like uh, an education and training context, like for companies and like corporations are Mm -hmm. like buying out these headsets in bulk to, Mm -hmm. you know, use at their, their companies to, train people like this is really good this is a really significant like healthcare application right um like medical application in that sense so yeah i think it's it's those types of industries more than music that will really lead in terms of investment and adoption um but music i mean obviously has so much influence on culture and so will always be included in that like i feel like every vr application needs to have some kind of uh effective sound design Right. And so you can totally tap into music in that sense in terms mm-hmm. of working with composers or partnering with, with artists to help out with that and like mm-hmm. create these soundscapes or soundtracks for that. Um, that, that's definitely an opportunity, but it's not like a leader. If that right. makes sense. Yeah. Right. I think one artist that did augmented reality pretty well before he passed away was Nipsey Hussle. He had a smart oh, store. Oh, yeah. He mm. had a smart store. So you'd go in and it'd be a bunch of shirts with like a, screenshot of maybe a music video on it and you put your phone over it and it would play the music video oh that's so yeah while you're looking at the t-shirt and you could obviously take that shirt home with you and people could play around with it when you're wearing it around that's so smart yeah fashion for sure is like uh i think we'll totally be a leader in that because there it's like i I think in in vr and air what people are looking for are like practical use cases just thinking from like uh like a user like an investor's kind of perspective Mm -hmm. Again, fashion, it's like more practical than anything. Cause like a lot of times for like, especially for online shopping, you might want to like try on a piece of clothing. True. Or like to understand the context in which you might wear it or in which, yeah, like an artist like has worn it in a video or or other kind of content. So yeah, I think, yeah, fashion is definitely leader in that sense too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting too, just cause when it does come down to adoption, I feel like once you do get big musicians that start to leverage the technology as a means of like connecting with their fan base. It's just going to mobilize fans and like really fuel a lot of the adoption. Mm. Um, so going back to like startups, what do you think are interesting similarities between startups and the startup mentality and the music industry and like musicians? Mm. Um, I think about this a lot and I actually see this. I will answer your question, but just yeah, like yeah, as please. a note, um, I see this as something where the written word can actually be super um, valuable because I realized like when I was first writing about the space that the languages and even just like the terminology that 
people use and like the tech and the music worlds are so different and like the ways that there are some similarities, but there are also are like really big differences in how they measure success and like mm-hmm. what they value and like growing their companies. And something like the written word can kind of help serve as a bridge between those two worlds and like just try to like translate things for people mm-hmm. or like, um, like a lot of people think, uh, tech companies are like working against them or like they're like inherently like trying to like take away all their money. Right. Um, sometimes it might be true, but for the most part, like yeah, they're yeah. actually just like, this is, these are the incentives they're working on totally. the metrics, right? right? So things like that. So I, I really enjoyed that, that, that kind of work. Mm-hmm. So thinking of similarities between the startup world and the music world. So I'm thinking in both directions in terms mm-hmm. of like what one area is learning from the other. Right. So what I think a lot of musicians are learning from the startup world is um, the value to an extent of gathering user feedback. Totally. So in this case, user, just another word for fan, right. right? Or like, or anyone who happens to listen to your music. And so this isn't anything new, but I think is exacerbated in the age of streaming and social media where like producers will like upload a beat they're working on be like, Hey, what do you think about this? Right. Or they'll like, yeah, they'll upload a beat. And I've seen a bunch, especially do this to, uh, nowadays, like who, who do you think, uh, like will be the best at like finishing out this beat or like right. rapping person this beat, right? right? And like right. interacting with fans in the creative process, mm-hmm. um, as a song or album is being put together where I think previously, uh, like they took pride in doing that behind closed doors. Like mm-hmm. you need to have some kind of like aura or mystique right, um, totally. around yourself, right? As yeah. an artist. And um, that's, I think that that is still very much the appeal from like the fans perspective. Like, oh, well, I wonder like what they're up to today. But, right. um, but I think now there is uh, more like of a tendency towards just being more transparent right. and a- about the creative process. Right. And another thing that I, I'm also thinking a lot about, and I'm actually like writing a piece on now. So in tech, there's something called the no code movement that's coming up. Um, I don't know if either of you are familiar with it, but it's essentially, it's a movement encouraging people without any technical background to start like building apps or like websites. Mm-hmm. And there are a ton of tools out there. They're like whole sites that just like lay out tools that you can use to build a website, build a mobile app, build like a voice bot mm-hmm. or like a messenger bot without any code. Um, and there are like people, yeah, trying to build like viable businesses around this. Right. And, um, and there's like both support, but also like a lot of skepticism from more experienced developers, obviously, mm-hmm. right? Being like, of course, if you're trying to like sustain a business, you probably want someone with actual coding experience, right? right? To like be able to customize your website or like your, your UX more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I think there's like a really similar movement happening in music and that. Um, I think it is completely possible for someone without any kind of musical background to, <laughs> <laughs> to, for better or for worse, to, uh, to create a song and upload it, um, to a streaming service to start monetizing it for like little to no cost. Mm-hmm. And you see this in the creative process. Like there are like apps upon apps that allow you to like make your own beats or, um, especially with the onset of like AI and the creative process, like, uh, where you can click a button and it'll generate like a minute long mm-hmm. um, musical excerpt for you that you can like right. download royalty free and start like playing around with. So there's mm-hmm. that. Um, there are like apps that'll allow you to, uh, or th- this is like less about monetizing, but I'm just thinking of like 
uh, apps like Triller where they'll like edit the video for you and it's like mm-hmm. kind of automated video editing, <laughs> yeah, right? Like there are sure. more, there are more and more app, like there's another app called Trash, um, that, uh, recently launched that is trying to do the same thing, mm-hmm. um, aiming more at like artists specifically. So in short, there are like all these tools that allow artists without any experience to kind of like cobble together a song and, and upload it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, a lot of people are asking the question of like, oh, is this democratization good or bad? Mm-hmm. Um, like the, the democratization of like creativity of music. Mm-hmm. I personally don't think like should is the right question. I think a better question is like, do we have like, cause I think the last thing we want to do is like stifle people's creativity. Right. 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 Like, d- do you mean we should be putting out less music? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more of a like, do we have the infrastructure to, like to support that um, and to encourage that. And I'm also thinking now of like uh, of companies like Splice, mm-hmm. which um, maybe may familiar yeah, with. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. I've worked with Splice. Cool. Cool. Shout out Splice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like in terms, that's also, I think is kind of like a no code or low code example because artists can, or anyone can kind of like download sample packs that right. these like pretty renowned artists have used or producers have used started incorporating that into, into their own work. And like, right. that's, there's a reason that they like raised so much money in their recent round. It was like almost $60 million because, Crazy. yeah, yeah. Because they're like one of the few companies allowing that infrastructure to be there mm-hmm. um, and like building that platform where people can, um, where like, yeah, artists kind of get to share their process more transparently with people mm-hmm. um, and people can kind of take part in that regardless of how much experience they have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the no code movement is relatively new, but I've, uh, that's just something that's top of mind for me in terms of like something that's super similar in terms of like the pool of people who are participating sure. in the like quote unquote industry totally. and like how incentivized are we versus not to like support that. Yeah. That yeah, yeah. That's yeah. funny because well, two things. One, I am learning how to program okay. <laughs> and my old roommate is actually a very well seasoned programmer and mm. he had like low key a panic attack about where where uh, programming is going because there are so many new programmers and junior programmers and then he thinks they're sort of going to take over the world and we won't really have talented engineers to move forward the culture in the same way. Um, I, I think that's super interesting when you compare it to music because it is sort of like that in terms of how easy it is to make music. Um, I would say that that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I definitely think that does change the ecosystem. Sort of how like years ago we saw how record labels weren't necessarily as important as they are now. Well, now everyone's making music again, and you know who still has that access? Record labels. So they've kind of become, at least this is in my opinion, they've kind of become something important again, and you know they're making more money than they ever have because now everyone can make music, and now everybody, it's kind of like crabs in a barrel sort of type thing, and the record label can sort of still take them out. It's like we still have this access, we still have these connections for years and years and years. It's like the no-code movement, but with music, it's like the record labels can kind of remove them from that, from that, you know, crabs in a barrel atmosphere at least that's how i sort of see it at this point point. and it's know? like uh and the very nature of a and r i feel like has changed as a result of that or like artist development like yeah if thinking at least in like a major label context what that actually entails now is so different because so much of the development is happening in these like the equivalent of these no code areas right or yeah. like, like user um like artists getting feedback from fans from each other right. in a much more decentralized way and then yeah labels are super important to take those artists to the next level, but it's like development kind of like higher up on the, right. I don't want to, I'm um, wary of using the, the term ladder, but it is like higher up in terms of like 
breaking the artists into like the mainstream, right? Um, versus developing them from the ground up. Yeah. Th- there are some exceptions, but I think for the most part, that is where they're focusing now. Yeah. Right, right. It's fun stuff. I mean, the democratization argument is fascinating just in the sense of like, by bringing down barriers, barriers of access that used to be there. I think, I mean, it enables more people to like play. And I think if you do look at that in the startup world, I think the fact that like, generally speaking, the cost to develop, I mean, apps like today, I mean, you could just use like cloud servers, whereas like exactly. 30 years ago, like you actually needed like local servers. Um, yeah. So that's actually <laughs> given rise to this like increase in speed. And like, you just see the increase in like technology constantly like exponential. So I think that access in the music front too, like creates this interesting sense, uh, this interesting paradigm shift of access and kind of availability of music. But yeah, I mean, then on the flip side too, it's, I think competition rises, um, which I kind of, on one side, there's more musicians. And I think we actually somehow you learned about us through your conversation, I think with Derek Arrow. Mm -hmm, And -hmm. one of the interesting conversations we had was about, I mean, this topic exactly like, is it more competitive now as an artist? Um, I mean, or is it, is, is it easier to thrive now as an artist? Cause you can actually create your own connection with your audience. And he's like, on the flip side, like it's just as much more competitive. So from your perspective, yeah. like you have the increase in competition, but then you also have like the increase of like technological tools that can give you like artist intelligence around like, okay, this artist is popping across these different streaming platforms. When it comes to discovery of new artists, do you feel like technology gives ARs an unfair advantage relative to where it used to be back when those the, those sorts of technologies weren't available? Or do you think it makes it more difficult? Mm, because from, of the competition. Yeah, from the uh, ANR's perspective. So yeah, we'll, we'll un- focus this from the ANR's yeah. perspective because yeah. there's like so yeah. many different ways you could dive in here. Mm. But yeah, because on one side you have an increase in competition, so there's a greater supply. Yes. But on the flip side, you also have better tools to largely evaluate this increase of supply. Mm. Do you think it's easier now than it used to be? Mm. So I guess there are two sides of like, yeah, yeah like is it easier for the ANR yeah. versus for the artist? To like right. break through. Yeah. Okay. So I'll start on the NR side. So the stat, I think that, um, Tim Ingham, who runs music business worldwide recently, like, I guess pulled out. It was from the, from the IFPI's latest, like global music report. I think I have to read that every year at school. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I was a music business major. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. Like I mean, it is like a must read in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think last year labels, Major labels signed an average of two artists a day. So it was major like labels. Major. I th- wow. That probably includes so, all of their subsidiaries. All their subsidiaries. Oh, so yeah. 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 So like they're, that's like, yeah, over 700 artists signed, um, last year, just like a per huge la- per major. No, in total, in total. Oh, oh in okay. total. Oh, okay. Got yeah. Yeah. We're still, still a fair amount. It I is. think that volume is definitely, um, increased. In part because I think the deals artists are signing are like somewhat more flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I, I bring that up because so this is something I did want to bring up in terms of how tech has also influenced the music industry for better or for worse. And that um, a lot of labels are increasingly or this is, I think, like a perception people have, like they're judging the quality of artists on their um, on their stats, like mm-hmm. essentially treating them like athletes, like athletes, like your, your batting average or your like apologies. I don't know the term, but like how many like three pointers you make for a basketball player, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's like 
that defines your career and your success yeah, yeah, as an athlete, yeah, yeah, right? Sure. And like that kind of has like translated to the artist world, like how many, oh, you got to have, um, it makes sense if you're at a major label level, but like, you know, you got to have this many streams, got this many mm-hmm. like followers. The tools that are out there give artists an unfair, give A&Rs an unfair advantage maybe in having like the bigger picture view of who is most successful on those metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I don't think it gives them necessarily an advantage with respect to actually like understanding the, the quality um, of the artist or actually like being able to approach artist development in a way that doesn't rely like solely on numbers. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. And like, I think especially in hip hop, there just kind of like tend to be an approach of just like, throwing everything at the wall, seeing what sticks with, with respect to signing, right? Like, right. oh, this artist is like popping, we got to sign them, um, <laughs> you know, like while, while, while they're still peaking and like maybe mm-hmm. build more momentum around that. Right. Yeah, it's like purely data-driven, maybe at the expense of actually developing like an artist's sound or their like um, their persona or like actual artistry. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think that there's definitely like a double-edged sword there. Um, and then from the artist's perspective, in terms of whether it's easier or more difficult. I think, I mean, given that the pool is bigger, obviously the acceptance rate to like, a, to signing to a major label is like so much lower if, if that is your goal, right? Like that is like much more difficult. But in terms of artists being able to um, find like a small, like, so, okay. So to borrow a concept from tech, there's like, there's a concept of the minimum viable product and a minimum viable audience, right? Like mm-hmm. what is the audience that you need to like sustain this product, not necessarily to grow like 10 X every year, but just right. like, to sustain it right year to year. I think the technology is there for artists who are like, yeah, like super motivated and work hard to like find their, their own minimum viable audience. And like, you mm-hmm. don't necessarily have to get on even like on a big Spotify playlist or Apple music playlist to like find that audience. I mm-hmm. like, I very much believe that. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think it is, easier in that sense but and, and I, I totally understand that the the notion that like competition is increasing mm-hmm. um but i also think it's like to- it's so much easier for like i think for artists to kind of carve out their own lane and it's like better and for them to like not compete with anyone and just be themselves and like embrace that aspect of of themselves right and, like in, in their art and find a loyal audience just through that mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to like ride the wave of signing to major label or getting on this playlist. Right, if that makes for sense. Sure, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I mean, do you feel too, just to dive deeper in that? I, I think ultimately, yeah, finding your minimum viable audience is really the, should be the number one priority as an artist in the early stages of your career. I think, uh, like Russ and I guess a lot of like hate in the hip hop world, but also I think spoke, he's like, all artists should build up leverage on their own as an independent artist. So that way, when they do sign with a major, like they are coming to the table and can dictate their own terms. Totally. Um, when in reality, I think, yeah, I think a lot of people might develop some initial traction and, and see like a carrot, like dangling, like you can get all this money, but sometimes like you're signing away the bet on yourself that you could make and are essentially mm. just exchange, getting Especially a lot more upfront now, upfront money now, um, at the expense. And then that's why you see somebody like, uh, who was it that just Taylor Swift was like oh, yeah. going crazy? Cause I guess all this news with like Scooter Braun. And that's because when she was likely a very early artist and, and got signed early, she didn't have the leverage 
to retain ownership of her masters. So like scooter aside, like she didn't own her masters from the beginning. And then you see somebody like Russ, who is kind of like, because of the leverage he built on his own, still is really just signed like a partnership distribution deal and still himself That's what Tyler created it too. Right, retains yeah. all ownership of his masters. So I think as like an emerging artist, I think everybody talks about like, they glamorize this notion of being like an independent artist. I do think the majority of like major artists today still are signed with major labels. And I do still think that to become like a massive pop star, you should not discount the support of which a major label can bring to you. And um, there's a reason Taylor is with Republic yeah, and not with going totally dependent, right. which she could do. Right. Right. She, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think all that's to say, I think like as a emerging artist, yeah, I think you should really, I mean, the minimum viable audience thing is like so valuable. Focus on building that leverage, focus on building that community, um, and then create your own, like a structure that will work for you when signing with like a major label. Yeah. And I think, uh, like defining your, this is like so cliche, but I think it's so true. Like defining what success really means for you. And like, sure. not, you mentioned like, you know, like someone dangling a carrot over you, right? Like that's someone else's idea of success totally. for them, right? Like dictating what you do yeah, when sure. um, you're not even sure like what you want. And then you're kind of swept into that. Yeah. yeah. So exactly like building up leverage and like defining success on your own terms first, such that when you do approach these deals, yeah. um, you can sort of embed that in the actual terms. Yeah, For sure. For God, sure. grow your own carrot. Yeah, <laughs> eat, eat your own carrot. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag grow your own carrot. Yeah, <laughs> love, it. <laughs> love it. I'm gonna tweet that. <laughs> so when it comes to growing your own carrot uh, and like growing that, that initial audience and carrot, what um, I mean, what do you see as being some of the the core things that people should focus on? I mean, is it like go all in on social media or like how have you seen the um like from your perspective? Where should an artist be focusing on building their audience in their early stages? Mm. I mean, it's just like go all in on social media. I mean, go all in on building a listener base on, on different streaming platforms or like when you approach the overarching question of like building a fan base from your perspective, like what does that mean? Yeah. Where do you focus your time? I think so. Part of this is, uh, like it, it's a big, like it depends, but mm -hmm. I think. In general, building a fan base, I think, uh, effectively requires, um, yeah, some kind of social element. So I would not advise trying to build a fan base on Spotify. Like, I, I think some, some artists have done that pretty well, but in general, I think that's just like a lost cause. I like, try to do that because it's, there's so much friction still on Spotify to even like trying to find out where an artist is from, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Or like an artist biography. So it's not, as of right now, I don't think it's built for fandom, mm -hmm. um, which is, I think is super important because it is where a lot of artists go uh, first when trying to promote their music or try to build a fan base or like um, their first like post on social is go stream my music. But like mm -hmm. you're bringing fans to a place that isn't really built for them, really built for that like closer connection. So right. in contrast, Maybe the like royalties aren't as good, but so many artists have built like really strong fan bases on YouTube mm -hmm. because yeah. yeah, like they're able to post their music or videos and, and there's even like things like commenting, like this is still like one of the, 
maybe like the few things that I think SoundCloud still has going for it too. The fact that you like people can comment and like timestamp their comments right. on a song, right? right that an right. artist drops. That is cool. Yeah. Like uh, speaking of gathering feedback, right? It's yeah, like for super sure. valuable for sure. um, channel for that. And yeah, like there are artists, uh, like one example is Wolfpack. Do you mm-hmm. know of them? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like they, they're a really good example of, so they're going to play Madison Square Garden in September. So they're like huge. Crazy. They're like growing. And they like have never cared once about Spotify playlists, at least like the few times I've talked to them. They're mm-hmm. like, this doesn't really matter for us. And they've like, they poured all their heart into YouTube mm-hmm. and like YouTube and um, Instagram yeah. as well. And they, they use them. So they use Instagram to actually showcase uh, fan made covers of their songs. Right. That's like basically all they do. And yeah. so it's a really good way to, um, it's like a platform to celebrate fans right where fans celebrate each other yeah which i think is also super important it's not just like a vertical mm-hmm. artist to fan interaction right um and then yeah and then like they uh have like a really i guess significant catalog of of videos on youtube that like fans can just like, just keep going back to right. streaming as well so yeah I, I i'm like wary of generalizing advice to all artists but i think that's just something super important to keep in mind of like mm-hmm. Uh, focusing on places where where you can really build a sense of community, totally. not just between like yourself and your fans, but um, like among fans as well. Yeah. So they, they can start like, I guess, bubbling up conversations around your music. Totally, and totally, totally, um, totally. Cause that's, so in terms of like music recommendation, I've realized for all the power of like discover weekly release radar, all these algorithmic playlists, like mm-hmm. word of mouth is still so important in mm-hmm. terms of um, actually like rallying people emotionally around an artist, right? Rather than just like saying, Oh, I discovered right. this song on this playlist. Um, and so like these types of like platforms like YouTube, SoundCloud, like, just things that even have like these commenting or threading capabilities, like that's the closest thing to word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, that's online. So right. I think that like cannot be, uh, um, it cannot be overstated. I think how totally. important that is. Yeah. Totally, totally, yeah. totally. Yeah, I think for uh, from my perspective, I mean, I definitely am like a digital marketer that is heavily biased in the sense that I, my job is like focusing on helping people build their audience on socials. Mm-hmm. But aside from, yes, I think it's super critical to like build a thriving community on socials. Like if I had to pick one platform just to dive in, I think like you brought it up, but like YouTube is like one subscriber on YouTube is more valuable than one subscriber on Instagram, yeah. which is far more valuable than Facebook knowing that you can barely even reach your followers anymore. And I think like Twitter is still there and Twitter I think is interesting in the sense that it very much is still like, I I wouldn't say it's critical for growth per se, but as far like the context of Twitter is so much more conversational than any other platform, which is much more inherently like megaphone esque. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think like that's a good place for like the feedback and for like chiming in on conversations. But yeah, I think like, I think Twitter is also all personality at this point. Yeah, for sure. It's like people are just following to get to know their artists personally. Yeah. And I mean, you even look at like Marshmallow and like, I mean, he's, don't get me wrong. He's like flexing across every social channel at this point, but it's been a strategy that's been largely dominated by YouTube presence and like innovation on creating very, amazing intriguing kind of relatively longer form youtube content yeah um yeah so what do you think jordan being a manager when it comes to like focusing on building a fan base 
I think YouTube is the most important thing also. Mm-hmm. I was actually going to say, I'm so glad okay. you said I'm, that also. I'm glad yeah. that yeah, I do we're too. on the same page. There. I mean, yeah. me and the people at YouTube, I'm trying to be buddy-buddy with them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Not, only, not only to get preferential treatment, that's obviously part of it, but just to also just figure out how to use the platform. And yeah. they're trying, you know? They're putting in the effort to create these communities. Yeah. They're not just letting YouTube sit there right. and then have people figure it out on them, by themselves, you know? Right. I try to stay up on all of the new technology that youtube and all the new features that youtube releases because they're all they're trying to do is keep building that community they right. know they have that you right. know what i mean this right, isn't right. this isn't something that they're not aware of um they even have you know conferences and symposiums and things so, so managers like myself can learn how to do that more often mm-hmm. so yeah um i think youtube is extremely important well, speaking of youtube i think uh one of my favorite articles that you've written was about talking about like 88 rising and I mm. think the title of the article, how 88 yeah. rising wants to become Disney for the next wave of global internet culture. But to me, I'm fascinated by 88 rising. And I think they're one of the most like disruptive um, models as far as like what the future of like a music entity. I have. It's yeah. just such, there's <laughs> totally. such a broad company that I, it's hard to bucket them. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I think just for context for the listeners, like 88 rising, um, is at the intersection of being uh, like a video production company, a management company, a record label, a concert promoter. Um, the, any those are probably the top buckets. Yeah, they just so, like touch every yeah. almost every part of music, right? Like in terms of the business, and model. they started largely just by building a very like thriving community off YouTube. They created yep. tons of awesome content. It turned into building momentum around. I mean, it's all music centric content that had kind of whenever you're building any media property, like have some kind of clear editorial thread so you can actually have, uh, like if people are going to tell their friends about you, it's like they are, there's like a succinct narrative around what you're doing, who you stand yeah. for, what your community is. So they built that and in doing so, they were, uh, they started signing and representing different artists, most notably like Rich Brian, formerly known as Rich Chiga. And he has blown up They've blown up. Now they are signing artists. They're putting on major festivals, putting on major shows. Um, and I think the value proposition when they get signed there is like, if you look at your traditional record label, they are often middlemanning distribution. Like a record label has relationships with different press outlets. They have a partner at Spotify playlist or they might be able to get you on the breakfast club. Whereas if your company owns that means of distribution, that's one of the most powerful things you could have. And that's when you look again at like, no jumper and like no jumpers built this like thriving uh through adam 22's vlogs and his podcast and his youtube show and his just general youtube presence like this is why record labels are knocking at his door like yo let us pay you money you pick the artist you put them on mm. on your channel and then they release the video Hashtag on his channel grow your own carrot yeah exactly <laughs> no, so you can grow your own carrot right so it's like not only for artists but like the people that are looking to create the support systems for the artists must also grow grow their own carrots. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> lot, yeah. lots of yeah. carrots. I mean, so when you do you <laughs> see, yeah, yeah, all about the carrots. All about yeah. the carrots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. when you see, when you look, do you feel like models like Eighty Eight Rising or Lyrical Lemonades, or I mean, we had the uh, Andre Benz in a past episode, founder of the Nations. Mm-hmm. Like they built this thriving like curation community on YouTube, forty million subs. Um, and are now doing concerts, record label. Like you're seeing this happen more and more. Do you feel that is generally like the direction of record labels and management companies? Mm, um, like becoming me- like yeah, overlapping with media companies and becoming media companies in their own right. Totally, totally. And I think, yeah, I think this will be a natural evolution once artists um, 
treat themselves more seriously. But I, th- I think they are. But I think once like artists and other like players in the music industry treat them more seriously as brands in their own right, um, because I think in the world, so it, it, historically in the world of record labels, and I think to an extent now their priority was um, supporting a record. Like mm-hmm. e- even even if an artist is like signed to like a five album deal with a record right. label or something. Right, right. Um, it's not the label necessarily that's going to be involved in like managing the artist's brand in between like album one and album two, right? Like, they only really care about like sales of the record. Right. And like, we need to have a hit track. Yeah. Right. And like, we can have a huge artist behind it, but it's like, it's a track that matters. Right. Whereas now I feel like now because, um, artists, can build up more leverage themselves right. and can own distribution, own the relationships with their audiences. It's like artists really need to be treated as um, always on brands in the same way that um, I, I, yeah, I would say it's not totally out of the picture to say it's like similar to like Nike, right. right. Or like Nike or Adidas, like the way that these fashion brands that don't always, I guess like release new product all the time it's like it is pretty regularly but like it's, mm-hmm. it's much more of like a brand and like a culture and ethos kind of visually and emotionally around them right. um yeah so i think given given that shift for sure like the companies that will have the most upside in that are the ones that like understand that and right. are able to support the artists which this is not quite you're getting at with like the 88 rising model but i it's i think it is partially reason why like labels are moving more towards um, like services deals mm-hmm. as well, like artist services deals, as opposed to just like buying out most of the ownership of like a copyright for a song. Just like the, the priorities are different. Do you talk it's a little like, bit, just dive deeper into what that means for listeners? Like if it's an sure, artist sure. services deal? Yeah. So traditionally in a major label deal, the exact split depends, but usually like a major label will buy out the majority of the ownership of um, of like your masters mm-hmm. as an artist for like whatever albums you're going to release with them. So it could be like 70%, it could be 80% um, in some cases. And that ratio is kind of gradually whittling down mm-hmm. in the streaming age, I think. Right. But, and they own um, that copyright for, I think it's the life of the artist plus 75 years, or it's like they own the copy for quite a long time, mm-hmm. unless obviously like something is negotiated. But right. um, and so they hold on to that. And that's in part why, um, major labels are still so profitable because they have all this catalog that's been around for decades right. they still own right. that's still generating money for them. Whereas now, so yeah, like Tao the Creator, like other artists that come to mind are Kuko and Maggie Rogers. So both of them, so all those artists now like own their entire copyright and they're right. just signing like what is essentially an exclusive licensing deal with the label. So like the label has exclusive license to help like market promote and distribute this music in exchange for a split of like the profits right. or like royalties. Um, but the, they don't, they don't own it after that period is over right. and that you can stick with them or go kind of go anywhere else. Mm-hmm. As a result of that. Okay. Yeah. Nice. But yeah. And I also, so this is, I'm curious to hear like both of your thoughts on this, but to, to go back to like the 88 risings and mm-hmm. like the lemonades of the right. world, I feel like visual and like influencer culture has a huge impact on um, on the music industry now in terms like both in terms of like how you market a song but also in how artists build their careers so the highest paid influencers on Instagram how I understand it is they basically are just like paid uh, for existing and like <laughs> and brands 
uh, and brands and, and products, people, brands, the companies that, you know, manufacture certain products are paying them because they exist and have this, I guess, this very rabid following because they're subscribing to this life that this influencer is like right, right. showcasing on their Instagram, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're getting like the highest paid ones are getting like six figure checks for just every product placement, which is ridiculous to me. And so, um, from an artist's perspective, who's from, yeah, as an artist who's getting like half a penny per stream, um, I could totally understand also an artist looking at that and being like, wow, just like the economics of that are like so different. Right. Mm-hmm. And like the priority now is on like, maybe I should be prioritizing having a better visual ba- brand. Um, I've talked about this on my own podcast as well, or like with guests of like artists, like uh, having their own creative directors and that being essential. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at, I think like um, Tierra Wack is a perfect example. Like she's such a good rapper for sure. Like one of the best rappers out there, I think now, yeah. but she also like very clearly has some kind of creative direction of support around her. Mm-hmm. Just like yeah. by like, the crazy outfit she's wearing at every show or like right. when she's like posting on Instagram. Um, so I think having that element will be super important for any artist's career. And so, yeah, for sure, like labels will probably want to make that a bigger part of, of their business, which I think has always been, which has always been the case, but especially at least the major label level as the music industry's revenue kind of like went down, they started like outsourcing video production mm-hmm. as opposed to keeping it in house to like cut, um, cut down on costs. But companies like 88 rising and lyrical lemonade that like have it all in house, definitely like have an advantage now, especially right. as, at least thinking of like newer companies starting out for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, I definitely think too, it's like musicians and influencers are very much largely the same. <laughs> yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. there's like very little difference except I guess that one is like tries to lead with the integrity of their music. Whereas the other may not have integrity. Mm-hmm. Wait, so you said, you said what is still the same? Influence. She was essentially saying there's this migration of like influencer culture towards music culture. Oh, and yeah, how yeah. That's largely how they like roll it out. But I mean, I think it's, yeah. That's true. The, the goals are the same. And yeah. to go back to like music and tech as well, one thing I wanted to bring up that I just find very amusing is that you'll, you'll hear the phrase rock star entrepreneur all the time. Mm-hmm. Or like, it, it's like <laughs> mostly kind of like self-helpy advice yeah. articles online about entrepreneurship. Like how to, <laughs> how to be a rock star entrepreneur. And, <laughs> And I think that exists because um, it's like, yeah, tech founders and maybe these like influencers from outside of music who are looking to music to have the same kind of cultural influence and human right. connection for sure. So yeah, mm-hmm. definitely it, it, the inspiration goes both ways. Yeah. 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 I feel like the scaling personal connection is huge too. Cause I feel like, I mean, when you think about why people develop a connection with an artist, it's because they largely resonate with the narrative that they portray. Yes. Yeah. Encapsulates yes. all these different elements. I mean, your yeah. visual aesthetic, the creative direction, but largely, I think, the personality and what they stand for. Yeah. I think about that a lot. And yeah. just how you actually, as an artist, really need to be, like, even when we're, if I'm, like, working with an artist, like, one of the first things we do before we even start making, like, any content is try and really, like, dial in on, like, what are the core, their core, like, two to three different brand pillars or their kind of core personality traits totally. that we just want to make sure are just constantly like felt and communicated through their content. Um, what do you guys, when you think about artist narrative, like what are, what do you guys feel are like important elements for artists and managers to consider when figuring out how to best portray their narrative? Yeah. So I guess there are two trends in parallel that I think are speaking directly to this. And that's, um, 
the rise of like docu series and biopics about artists. Um, there are like so many of them. Like I saw a trailer. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's for uh, like a, a movie about this like immigrant family that um, gets, or this I guess this Im- the son and this immigrant family that, that gets super inspired by like Bruce Springsteen's catalog, mm-hmm. and it's like very clearly. I, hopefully it's a great movie, but it's also very clearly like <laughs> yeah. a marketing vehicle for Bruce Springsteen as right. well. Um, so you see more and more of that. And then you also see um, the rise of live streaming and in particular Twitch streaming for artists. Mm-hmm. So a lot of artists are seeing the, um, yeah, I guess the, the money, but also the audiences that a lot of these like gamers are building on Twitch and they're trying to like tap into that as well. Mm-hmm. And, but I'll, I bring up, Twitch because I think something to keep in mind, um, and this is something that I've like heard a lot, and it's also super cliche, but I don't really know how best to how like better to express it is that like if it's in this day and age, if it's not genuine or like authentic with a capital A, like it's what everyone talks about. But mm-hmm. if it's not that, like people will like call you out, and, right? Oh, for sure. Like cancel you immediately, oh. and like you you especially <laughs> see this in the gaming world. I feel like gaming audiences have an ex- especially sensitive like BS detector. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, are you really, um, are you really trying to just do this just to get money from us, or like, right. are you like really invested in our community? And so that I think is super important. But so to speak to those two trends as well, I think embracing interests that are outside of music can also be an asset. And, and mm-hmm. I'm noticing this now, like. Now I've heard of now of two web series on YouTube featuring artists that are just cooking food and like talking yeah. about their favorite food, right? Because also like food is food like music is such an such a powerful and effective avenue into understanding culture, into understanding right. like a person's like personality, their background. And so mm-hmm. it's just a very natural um affinity there. Totally. And I think, yeah, maybe from a label perspective in marketing a record focusing on things outside of the actual music maybe was seen as detrimental, but now I think it's totally, um, totally an asset in terms of like, just showcasing the multiplicity of a human being, right? right like, n- not, sure. not just treating the artist yeah. as an artist. Like they're also human being. They also think about all these different things during the day. Totally, right. Totally. Yeah. Which also is like a qualm of mine too. And I think you mentioned that this too. I mean, just like record labels are so focused on marketing like records. And are oftentimes neglecting the notion of like creating and building up this persona to showcase the artist as a human being. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see that too, right? Like art, like big labels just putting in, pouring all their support directly into like records and just like their marketing teams living for like Fridays and promoting new releases. Mm. I mean, I would say it was a little bit more popular before um, like social media kind of came in and, and, and started mm-hmm. building a wave of people that expect more than just an artist. Mm hmm. I mean, you know, I've seen the docu documentaries about bands in the nineties getting, you know, little to no money for their royalties and the record label kind of getting all of it. I think it was a little bit more prominent in that area. Um, I think now showing that the artist is a human being is almost too important, almost as important to a point of intrusiveness to the artist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think record labels mm-hmm. have to really be careful with what they, I've seen, this is what I've seen all the time. So, um, including myself, somebody who works for the artist, wanting them to post something um, and it being too markety. It doesn't sound human enough. Mm. I've seen that 
I've seen that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's like where posting it just for the sake of right. Um, posting it to have something up there to show that they're a human in some way. Right. Yeah. Right. So a yeah. lot of the times I'll just send an asset to one of my clients and I'll be like, you come up with what to say. <laughs> like, I'm not, I, that's I'm not like, that's such a better approach. I think. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to tell you what to say and I'm not even going to tell you when to post. You just send it to me. So I know it's up. Right. You know? And I also, before that, I also have to do the due diligence with the artists and explain to them why it's important. Cause at the end of the day, they don't, they don't, they don't have to post anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's not like labels can put like pull your arm and be like, look, if you don't post it, they can, we don't have anything over them anymore. <laughs> it's like right. they, they, they're, they're either going to post it or not, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think labels have had to be and management companies and companies in general have had to really get to know the artist, not only to showcase their humanness to the world, but also so they know how to work with the artist. Like mm-hmm. I have to get to know my artists on a much deeper level than I think people did right. 10, 20 years ago. Right. You know? Mm, so. Totally. And like, yeah, so this is in part why I'm like wary of even talking about like authenticity with a capital A, because <laughs> it, it does like the danger is that it does turn into this of like um, turning artists who don't want to be content farms into content farms, right? Like on right. Twitter and Instagram. Right. But like, yeah, there definitely is like a necessary balance there and yeah i think it does uh so i really like the point that you made about like if you're talking with a artist like just trying to define what their like brand pillars are right like in the first place yeah and maybe one of them is like having boundaries and not like posting all the time on social media and yeah. that's totally fine like um like i think frank ocean is doing totally fine without posting <laughs> every day on social media but um, he did have a he did have a process that he grew to in true. order to get there. He posted yeah. a lot on Tumblr before. Mm, he did have true. a connect a connection with okay. people on Tumblr. He even came out on Tumblr. That's you know? that's very true. Yeah. Um. So he did build towards that. I'll, I'll only say that because, um. You know, I've met a good amount of musicians that use Frank Ocean as the example of why they don't need to show their humanness. Um. But I think Frank Ocean Same. built built like himself up the to full that. Story. Yeah, 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 yeah. He, he yeah, built yeah. himself up to that. Yeah. He was connecting with his listeners. You know, he was an odd future before. And obviously right, Frank Ocean right, right. wasn't the Frank Ocean we know now when he was an odd future, but he spent a lot of time investing into those early listeners mm-hmm. to the point where when he dropped Channel Orange, it was like there were a lot of people that were invested in him. So when he went dark, at that point we missed him because it was mm-hmm. like we know him. Right. So now we miss him. That's true. Yeah. You, you can't you can't miss someone who didn't that you put don't in know. the work, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um to the point where now everybody I know talks about Frank Ocean. They don't even say his last name. They just say Frank. Right. And we all know who they're talking about. (laughs) Like, you have Frank dropped a new song? Like, Frank, you could have a friend named Frank, but you would think of Frank Ocean first. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's just how it is now. You know what I mean? So funny. Yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I got a hot take also. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So we have, um, a set, a thing at the end of every episode where we have hot takes with our guests. So it's pretty much things to stir the pot or just to get you thinking sure. kind of off the cuff. So I came up with this sort of during the interview, but um, I took an entrepreneurship class when I was at NYU and uh, it was an entrepreneurship class revolving around starting a company, but it was, it was, it was music. It was in the music industry. Um, and somebody actually came in and spoke to us and said that they thought that music tech products we're currently oversaturated in the market. So my hot take to you is music tech products are currently oversaturated in the market. Interesting. Um, just in general. In, in general. Music and tech. Yeah, music and tech. It's just 
Like he almost was like, don't even, like, don't, don't even don't try. Even start yeah, yeah. He was wow. like, there's too many I music see. tech companies, you know. I would agree with that take for certain areas of music. Like, mm-hmm. for the most part, I don't think there's any value in starting a new distributor. Yeah, I, I think that's like that. super. I yeah. read that article. Okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Nice. But yeah, like that space is super saturated. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, ton of like smaller companies that are trying to innovate are like definitely dropping or just like going out of business because there's just like very little chance of competing with what like CD Baby Tune Court, et cetera, have already put up. Um, I think blockchain is definitely, it's not saturated. It's just like, it's definitely crowded and there's so much investment but very little actual product coming out of it. So I, I don't think it's, not worth building a company around that. I think just like setting, like it's really important to be realistic about like how long you will be in the space if you want to come out successful. Because mm-hmm. like there are startups that, like the most successful startups, like barely have a working product and they've been out, they've been around for like five years. So like <laughs> you really have to like play a long game in that space. So it's not saturated. It's just crowded with very little to like show for it right now. I think there still is a place for new video apps, which not everyone agrees with. Um, like ev- everyone's talking about like TikTok now as like the biggest video app, which I think is like totally justified. But at the same time, I think there still are like untapped needs for like specific communities that like people can cater to in like video form. Uh, like I think I'm very interested to see where this app trash, which is like allows you to upload any video and it'll kind of like use computer vision to automatically edit it for you based on like previous analyses of just like what makes an interesting like film or TV. So they analyze, so they're approaching it in a really interesting way. Yeah. So it's like pretty high level um, and like super specific, but I'm like, I think there is an interesting place for that. And there's a reason that they're targeting more, I guess, experienced like artists. So like musicians and visual artists first before like everyday users, but Mm -hmm. that's a very specific, but I think, compelling like niche proposition so yeah I, I think it does depend on the area of music that we're talking about and another i guess realization i've had over the years is that uh music tech products that i guess that phrase like or products falling under that category very rarely like realize their full or best potential working only with musicians or like there are a lot of like music tech products that can also work with like any other kind of quote unquote creator, like a YouTuber, like a vlogger or a gamer. Um, and I think, yeah, people, I've, a lot of successful companies in the space, I think have like expanded beyond music as well. Not, not to say that it's impossible to have a viable business, um, only serving the music industry, but I think that more expansive outlook tends to be more successful. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I think uh, this is, we've covered a lot of ground, grown a lot of carrots. I think it's been. <laughs> whole, whole farm. Yeah. Right. Whole, not, not a farm, a garden. Yeah. Garden is friendlier. <laughs> um, well, we really appreciate you coming on. I think uh, I definitely learned a lot and I think I found it very fun to have some just higher level questions around, I mean, what is the impact of the democratization of a lot of like the music creation process of mm-hmm. all this good stuff. So I think it was, uh, it was cool to, kind of look at this in a whole different, a uh, bunch of different perspectives. So thank you very much for coming on. Super grateful to have you today. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you both as well. Thank you. Yeah.
Awesome. Man, we just kind of went on that one, man. It was super, super interesting. A lot of, a lot of great stuff to talk about. You know, I almost felt like that episode could have lasted like another hour or two. Oh, for sure. No, I mean, I think just diving into a lot of the different technological trends. I mean, it'll be super interesting to see where VR goes and how that plays in here. I mean, I, I think the notion of kind of musicians being similar to startups in the sense of constantly getting user feedback is such, such a valuable um, lesson to be learned. And I think a lot, I mean, yeah, at service level, it's very kind of intuitive, but I think if you dive deeper, I mean, you should really proactively be kind of seeking out, paying attention to the feedback. I mean, even when it comes to like content that you're putting out across your different socials, like see what's catching on, what's getting the most traction and then do more of that. I think, uh, with that said, obviously, you do want to balance the kind of notion of like feedback with your own artistic right. creativity, integrity. But I think it's to do one without the other is you're kind of uh, just making it harder on yourself for no reason. Yeah. Um, would you kind of really appreciate and enjoy this episode? Um, one of my favorite things that we talked about was democratization of music and how that relates to startup culture and specifically uh, the no code movement movement yeah that's yeah. the word no code movement that she talked about um that's the parallel that i've never made before yeah um and it's so interesting because i work in the music industry but i'm also trying to learn how to program so in essence a lot of the people that are afraid of you know people learning to code and all of these junior developers in the field they're afraid of people like me in addition to right you know not having enough experience in the field but and then and then making the parallel to to the musicians that are out now i mean how many how many Spotify listeners have we seen or Spotify artists that have, you know, 50 or 60 listeners. There's right. like thousands of them now. Totally. Um, so with this democratization of music, there's also um, a lower barrier to entry to get into music, but a, a higher one in order to be successful. So I thought it was super interesting talking about the parallels between the two, especially right. because I had a personal con- personal connection to it. Right. For sure. For sure. Um, well, as always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Really hope you enjoy this episode. Um, check out the show notes so you can go ahead and actually subscribe to Sherry's podcast or newsletter. Both incredible resources. As always, if you guys have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out to us at Music Business Podcast on Instagram. Uh, and please, your reviews go a really long way on iTunes across wherever you listen to this podcast. So uh, your continued support sincerely means a lot. So thank you, guys. Thank you. All right. Peace.